this matter of crime and punishment anyway. Through the centuries, our laws have been modified. Till now, men look back with horror at the hangings and killings of the past. It's been proven that as the penalties are less barbarous, crimes are less frequent. I need to argue with your honor that cruelty only breeds cruelty. I feel like if I had heard that closing argument speech when I did my uh, persuasive presentation in middle school about capital punishment, that I would have fared a lot better with my grade. Oh, yeah, you would have crushed. Uh, and no one remembers this speech, probably, right? Because it's really no, right. famous. Yeah. Uh, but it is, yeah, it's a very compelling argument against the death penalty. I realized you chose two films that are sort of anti-death penalty films. Mm-hmm, absolutely. punishments look at you being political i love it um <laughs> not surprising though not surprising at all no, we, all right, we, we are it. talking what are we talking about we're talking about in cold blood 1967 in compulsion 1959 two films i have not seen before what i, I thought for sure you had seen in cold blood no Oof, i was oh, dreading it actually um really i was like oh like another capote it's like I don't know. There's a whole seen Capote, thing, right? Yeah, I've seen Capote, but I've actually okay. only read expert excerpts of the book. Oh, you've read, read the, the whole book, book. either. No, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, hold on, hold on. Back Do do the intro. Oh, Film Trace. Yeah, that's what we're doing here, folks. Hey, Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. This is the final episode in our Stranger Than Fiction cycle. We're doing films pre-1970, In Cold Blood and Compulsion. Uh, Two, I guess, true crime uh, stories. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you do any other true crime stuff so far this morning? I guess Bling Ring, but that's not about murder. Usually true crime... implies murder right uh, heavenly creatures would be the, the closest yeah, that's the other one yeah um a, a, you know analogy and or analogous choice analogous. And actually i got a i got vibes um okay. from both of these movies uh with regard to heavenly creatures uh it's just that that film was uh, a lot more overtly homosexual than these two was much more subtextual compulsion Um, yeah especially you could tell like is this i'm not super familiar with the whole code code system but i feel like you couldn't do anything that showed homosexuality on the screen in 1959 right am i right yeah yeah okay yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Hays Code uh, famously did not allow for any kind of like on-screen violence or sexual innuendo, um, whether homosexual or heterosexual. Uh, 1968 was when it finally ended. So, like, In Cold Blood was still oh, God, technically within yeah. the, the confines, um, which is insane because that film um doesn't seem like it is when you look back and even now watching like wow this pushed a lot of envelopes yeah and it was the it was a first for a lot of um widely released movies um i've got a list here somewhere in my notes uh first appearance in a studio financed movie for the terms pussy bullshit jacking off and diarrhea yeah, I noticed when he said pussy, I was like, wait a second. Maybe right. Say that back then. Like, there's no way. Yeah. Really uh, interesting his- historically. And also, I think, um, kind of shows I, I kind of a trend in this collection of episodes and looking at uh, the idea of adapting strange stories from real life into 
you know, fictionalized or dramatized films, which is that there is kind of throughout all of the films we've covered a lot of uh, pushing the envelope, not so much as like in your face, perhaps as in cold blood was in 67, but I think it almost like, uh, it, it, we we we've talked in the past about de- being dis- desensitized to violence, but I think we've also become sure. desensitized to just like storytelling, uh, kind of scandals in general. Um, yeah, like going all the way to what initiated this cycle, cocaine bear. Can you imagine, <laughs> like even even ten fifteen years ago, that yeah. there would be like a wide release movie? Like I find it so strange that okay. like. I have high schoolers talking about like going like my my ten year old yeah. knows what cocaine bear is. Yeah, it's. I think it's. Uh, there's a lot of things that go into that, but I think uh, the prevalence of drugs, like drug use and stuff, is so different than it was like twenty, thirty years ago. Like cocaine is like you couldn't say, especially something like a hard drug like cocaine. I yeah, there's no such thing as like salaciousness or like pushing the envelope there's no envelope to push at post internet it's already mm-hmm. been pushed right like there's just film used to be the place where it was unique and a, a window into the world but that all got right. replaced by the internet yeah. so it's like all these little kids i forget what movie oh it was cocaine bear where some uh letterboxed reviewer was like um like this is great for people who grew up watching like live leak uh execution videos or something like that I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's pretty that's pretty apt right like it it seems like a movie made for 4chan forum users exactly you know what I mean? like just over the top and yeah, whatever but it's uh, what i was really thrown by in doing this cycle is that the first two movies we watched are like for some reason felt the tamest to me like we called it cocaine bear being like over the top but it didn't really feel like it was saying anything no, like you no. Watch in cold blood which I think is honestly a way better film than Compulsion. Anyways. Uh, oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah, right. Totally. Right. We can agree on that. And uh, so much more going on here. So much more going on. Uh, it's like mind blowing that it's the same medium, which I also thought that was crazy to the difference between Compulsion and In Cold Blood. They're less than 10 years apart, but it feels like a different medium as well. Absolutely. Like, this film, like what is, you know, the opening of Compulsion specifically? You're like, this looks like zany. Like, what is yeah. That? Yeah. Is this a Leave It to Beaver episode? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's dive into in cold blood what do we yes you kind of have a good history with it yeah so i mean i i read as much capote as i could uh in college um i think and like capote came out like when like towards the end of our our college tenures right undergrad yeah and i did yeah with Phil, Philip Seymour hoffman um and so the, uh, i don't know if it was if that was the impetus or just like being an English major in general, but yeah, I like tore through it, um, uh, a couple times along with breakfast at Tiffany's and other Capote works. But I remember, I have like a real, uh, strong memory of watching in cold blood because it, it felt so different from all the other times that I've read a book and then yeah. watched the movie of that book because yeah. it, and, you know, diving into the research finally, you know, umpteen years later, kinds of sheds a light on it. Um, it just seems, it's it's so simple, and yet it it seems so, like, it still is something that is rarely followed in the book-to-film adaptation world, which is that uh, the reason that the film is 
as good as maybe at least close to as good as the the not quote nonfiction novel as Capote called it um, is that essentially you had an like a, a a singular voice for the for the book and you had a singular voice for the film and they both worked together but also let each other do their own thing. Yeah. Like they had a mutual respect for each other, the director Richard Brooks, um, and uh, the book writer Truman Capote. But Brooks did the ad- adapted screenplay, and he was the guy behind the camera. And uh, there's a there's a great interview w- uh, with Brooks in which he kind of lays it down um, on how they work together. Uh, he said that. Tr- Capote asked him, when am I going to see the script? And Brooks responded, Truman, if you want me to do it, I can't show you the script. I'm not going to do it. I intend to follow the intention of the story. It can't be exactly the same, though. The story, the way you wrote it, goes back and forth in time, and I can't do that with a movie. People will become confused. But yeah. let's talk about anything you have on your mind. And he, they did. They met like 20, 15, 20 times, and they had like extended discussions about what that, what the film should look like. And they were two very like kind of strong-willed auteurs in their own yeah. mediums and like that's how you do it like but nobody yeah. does that anymore like I, nobody even rare people rarely did it back then gone girl Can we count gone girl? Sorry, <laughs> yeah sweet. i'm sure fincher and flynn sat down 50 to 20 down times. over some some sweet tea and we really, uh, really went for it uh yeah this is like it um as someone who's just seen this for the first time i i kind of was dreading it because i just remember the movie capote coming out i was like I, this is not it's like, you know, I don't know. I so celebrated amongst a certain sect of people that I grew up with. You're included. These liberal arts majors. We all studied English. We all worship Truman Capote. It's a whole thing. Uh, and going back and seeing this movie is like, oh God, do I have to really have to do this? But uh, <laughs> I will say that Richard Brooks clearly had his own vision here. I mean, mm-hmm. director, writer, and producer um, did it on sort of a cheaper budget than I think what they were trying to get for it. What's also really strange about this movie, and I'm totally unaware of this, but it was essentially shopped before the book was completed, yeah. which I thought was really fascinating because we think of that now as like, oh, that's like such a weird kind of incestuous, capitalistic way of doing things. But like, yeah, it's been going on for a very, very long time. Hell, they were casting this movie before it was even in like New York Times top 10. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like one of those weird sort of um, it was meant to be a movie as it was being released as a book, which you would not think about. That's um, not the first thought that came into my head when I was thinking about this movie. Uh, that would be like one of those uh, straight to straight to movie, like bestseller type situations. Right. Right. But um, what a what a beautiful uh, work of art, this movie. Right. I, I can't say that I loved it. Uh, yeah. Across the board. But I mean, wow! Like Conrad Hall cinematography, uh, Peter Zinner editor, Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones does the soundtrack. It's just like, and then the acting too. I mean, we got to step on this landmine. Robert Blake, whoa, <laughs> who you know had a uh, let's say a uh, not so great kind of end to his life, and you know murdering his wife and all of that. He was um, acquitted. He was he was acquitted, but then later admitted to it, and then lost his support. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's phenomenal, you know. And he was a journeyman actor even before this. He was young, but he was a child actor and stuff like that. But just phenomenal. Scott Wilson, who Walking Dead fans, Herschel the Farmer, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. his baby. I think one of his first roles. Um, 
it's a really uh to to your point this is a really strong individual unique work of art right um that uh it, it's it's interesting there's the way that it does i mean the, if you go like dive into the research on it like this whole notion that he was talking to capote right but like also retracing the steps of the killers himself yeah like kind and it's just some weird stuff there was a a press conference i'm trying to find where this was then they like a press conference where they announced one of the casting at like the penitentiary where the guys were hanged Robert, yeah 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 this is la times 1966 november uh they revealed the casting of robert blake at the kansas state penitentiary in lansing where smith and uh hickcock were uh, hanged Mm-hmm. Like, some weird stuff weird stuff's going on like right. it, you know it's funny that we're starting you know thinking about uh stranger than fiction and well, a big theme throughout the entire cycle was exploitation like yep. how can you make a movie about a true story especially murder without exploiting either the victims or the perpetrators or everybody in between and here we are with like one of the first big examples of it and it starts out on a pretty poor footing <laughs> you know with this yeah no way and I mean that I think that's obviously something that Capote struggled struggled with himself because he was very much drawn to this kind of you know proto criminal forensics type uh, exploration and psychology, and yet he I mean it kind of it kind of ruined him emotionally going through it um, because he was so fascinated by it and clearly was like a forerunner in this new genre of creative nonfiction and yet like was well self-aware of the kind of, you know, potential harm that was being mustered up by creating this new genre. Right. Um, I mean, I, I, it, I think about like, you know, when Serial, the podcast blew up, you know, and there was so much, so so many conversations about like exploitation and true crime stories. Um, And, you know, it's, it's been prevalent in American society in particular for so long. Like if, if Capote was alive today and like seeing what, what that world had become that he basically single-handedly started it's it's kind of sickening to think about and yet here we are still like just just uh endlessly and kind of hopelessly drawn to it ourselves and still self-aware and kind of struggling with it um at the same time um but i mean the 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 stunt the the yeah the stunt uh press release and kind of uh uh oh there's crazy stuff he like he wouldn't let them he he wouldn't let the actors refer to the novel then he would show them crime scene photos (laughs) showing this to to blake and wilson and you're just like man it's um they filmed in the actual clutter family home where the murders occurred I mean, that's, you know, I don't have a lot of morals, but like, that's <laughs> you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Like any average adult knows, knows that it's not the right, it's like disrespectful to the victims and all that sort of stuff. And it's kind of mind blowing that he did it. I mean, we all win. <laughs> I mean, because it's an amazing movie, but like, uh, it, yeah, there's, it's so intertwined here. Uh, and you just you wouldn't expect that from a movie shot in the 66 67 it just it mm-hmm. feels so um 
it feels of its time in the fact that when we think about the late 60s, we think about upheaval and social change and stuff like that. And it's certainly um, a good representation of that change that was going on back then. But on the other hand, um, it feels very contemporary and modern um, in a way that um, is uncomfortable, I think. Because you watch this movie, you're like, God, this kind of feels like a um, a movie that would be on Netflix, um, you know, or something. It, it, there's something about it that is magnetic, uh, and I think for maybe the, maybe not the right reasons, you know, mm-hmm. like talking about true crime and why people are so interested in it. You know, I do think like taking a step back, um, why do we think? I'm assuming that you really like this movie and like you've sort of have a, a strong opinion of it. I do wonder what about it specifically um, speaks to people right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I was, that was a question that I was wrestling with both during my rewatch of this movie and watching compulsion for the first time. Um, because, you know, largely because we've been having this, these kinds of discussions throughout um, the cycle of episodes, but especially with dog day afternoon, which is just like, it mm. was you know, you, me, and our guest Riley were just like, it, you could not, you could not not say that it's a Stone Cold classic, that like every yeah. shot is, you know, tight and unique and mesmerizing. And yet you're still grappling with the fact that we're like glorifying this guy who was a monster. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, and, I think on the at the very least, like I don't know if I would necessarily say like, oh man, I lo- love Inkle, but like I re- like I was interested in rewatching this for the purpose of the show. But if we yeah. weren't doing an episode on it, like even well, though I have like yeah. really strong visceral memories of my first watch of it, I don't know if I would have ever rewatched yeah. it. Well, it's it's not really an enjoyable watch. <laughs> no, no. That's right? why I like, yeah. I don't think I would say I'd like it or love it. I, I admire it. Right. Like yeah. it's, it's one of those films that just like is so draining and exhausting. So exhausting. Um, that, uh, yeah, I don't know, but you put, you pause any, you pause it at any given moment. And like you said, the lighting and cinematography oh, is all magic. Beautiful. So it's like, <laughs> You take that away from it all. And there's also just like really lovely, strange shots that, um, (laughs) I mean, you could, there's like, there's even like, like throwaway stuff. Like, um, there's a shot of a train going through the town to like announce morning and then like they throw mail off of it. Mm-hmm. I was like, why would you show that? But for some reason it works incredibly well. Yeah. Um, or like the, uh, and the Mexican sequence where he's sort of like hallucinating and, uh, and Wilson's in the bed with the, the girl. Mm-hmm. And then there's like this like little flutter of like, I guess you'd call it like Tejano music or mariachi music going on. It's just like this really, it is true craftsmanship in terms of like yes, filmmaking. Yes. Like it is not a film that is shoddy or B in any way whatsoever. Everything's very intentional here. And we have to remember that 1967 is one of those is like the Hollywood year for like stealing from the French new wave. Right. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde and all that. Like it's very much also based on a true story and exploitative Vassell. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like taking from European trends and really like without even trying to like make it palatable for American audiences. No, it's not like, palatable. I can't palatable, imagine yeah. being like, 
your average moviegoer in 67 and, and saying like <laughs> two for in cold blood i want to watch this true and story these are major studios this is columbia pictures yeah. this is not like some micro indie this is and not they, 824 right I mean? and they they like wanted like paul newman or you know who steve who, mcqueen steve mcqueen yeah. like big names to play um yeah. the murderers and obviously like brooks knows that like that's not the way to go you're gonna ruin the authenticity of the picture if you do that um and so he like digs and finds this former child actor and this new guy um scott wilson and uh it be it it i think that's part of the craftsmanship as well is like you have a film that not only is like looks beautiful um but is like gut-wrenchingly heartbreaking and then it's got these actors like it almost feels like kind of like i don't know did did richard brooks know that robert blake was gonna be a murderer or something like he's just so <laughs> perfect yeah he's very perfect yeah. and it feels so awful to say that knowing what happens 35 years later but yeah i mean it's one of the, it's like uh, we we dealt with this like you mentioned with dog day mm-hmm. where it's like separating in that in that case, it's like separating the true terrible person versus this amazing performance by Al Pacino on the screen. Here, it's like knowing that Robert Blake is a phenomenal actor, especially in this movie. We have hindsight knowing that he becomes a pretty terrible human being. Yeah, you know, it's like how do you? It's tough. It's like the Roman Polanski stuff. It's like how do you reconcile? And there's yeah. no clear path. There just isn't. Um, but, let's but say, I mean, in terms I'll, of like like what the film is saying too is like it's even more um i don't know magnanimous than dog day where like you could take the interpretation or messages of that film in in several different ways because it's so naturalist but here it feels very like it's so stylized it's so like like they draw out the the hangings of these two men after they've been sentenced to death uh to the point it like reminded me uh did you ever see like uh dancer in the dark with bjork yeah Mm, right like they just like want you to like feel so crushed and then but also be constantly thinking about like why do i feel so crushed when these guys did these awful things and yet like I don't. I also am like the, the other thing that stood out to me um, after seeing so many movies that like try to uh, psychologize or pathologize yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. murderers. I don't know how they still like make it work to like make you empathize with uh, Perry's like daddy issues. Like, the, yeah, it's so <laughs> interesting to me that that still works so many years later after that has been and done I- to death. You know, I was thinking about this after watching it because, you know, and diving into it and like looking at kind of the the anti-capital punishment argument that's happening here. Um, And then, you know, trying to dive into this whole genre, which you're right, is like essentially making someone who does something that, you know, universally we would say is pretty monstrous, um, you know, making them into a dynamic character as opposed to like an old school villain. I mean, that's like the difference, you know, we see in 1950s movies versus 1960s. It's like where the murderer, you can do that. You can give him a backstory. You can give him maybe a reason she or he thinks that she, they're doing this and why they're doing it. Hmm. Um, 
the issue that always pops up to me with true crime, and this is true to this day to, for me, is that I always find it a little bizarre that the focus is so on these people who committed murder, like in this case, and killed, what, four people. But the emphasis on the victim and the thought of the crime is so minuscule. Mm-hmm. It just—it's such a bizarre response to like what happens in these instances, and like the thing that I I struggle with with true crime in general. I'm not a huge fan of it. I can't—I like some of it. Um, is that like when we say, "Oh, we're trying to humanize." Uh, these people who did this monstrous thing. Well, number one, they're already human. You don't need to humanize them, right? <laughs> uh, and two, I think that there's this um, sense that like uh, this is somehow um, uh, an exception to how human beings are, right? And this is always like this is me being very cynical, and I'm gonna be honest with you. There are 40 murders a day in the United States alone. Like 40 people every single day by another human being. And so it's like we, and this movie is like maybe a little bit different than the traditional true crime, but it is kind of the foundation of that perspective. We're trying to sort of like, oh, this is like, um, uh, number one, they're humans. You don't have to humanize them. There's no reason to do that. Uh, Yes. You're kind of like, you can underplay that. They're not like pure evil or a villain, but like, okay, fine. And then it's sort of like, how unique is this sort of stuff? Now, in this case, they killed the family. That happens all the time, right? It literally just happened two days ago in a parking lot in Texas, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, that's the one thing where I struggle with where it's like, there's this huge artistic um, drive to do something here, but I don't know what they're doing, you know? Like what sure. are they really doing at the end of the day? Do you think? <laughs> like, what, I mean, that's, that's a kind of like a loaded question, but like, What's maybe the goal of Richard Brooks or or Capote? Yeah, well, I I mean, contextualized within, just to keep things relatively simple, like the movies that we've covered uh, from the 60s to today is, I think, first the notion that pre-1970, there was definitely, um, it it was still novel, I think, to, quote, humanize the villain. Um, I don't, I think that like, I I mean, I, I think especially like the sixties was, um, a unique decade in that there was a lot of civil unrest and like changing of paradigms and perspectives, at least here in America that allowed for that kind of dialogue to be fruitful. Um, why it still works today though, is I, is definitely a tougher question, but I don't think it's unanswerable i think uh it comes back to perhaps anybody that has any kind of interest in storytelling of like morally gray protagonists whether it's like a straight-up anti-hero like walter white or a, a more like nebulous one like um I don't know. Would be another like good modern Dahmer? example. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> well, that's, that's what uh, keeps popping into my head is like a show like Dahmer, right? Which is just you know was a cultural event. Yeah, last year. It was last year. I don't and, remember. And like the definition of modern exploitation, right? Yeah, um, Vic- you know, victims' families are still alive, and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's uh, 
Yeah, it's a it's a sticky wicket, as they say. <laughs> it's it's like, like you know, it's a great piece of art, but then like I, I don't know what to do with it. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? That's mm-hmm. what, like like one of the reasons why. Um, and you brought this up. It, it's I can respect it from like the craftsmanship a hundred percent, like across the board, the editing, the cinematography, music, acting. It, it's a beautiful picture, um, but I don't ever want to watch it again sure right and maybe that's a subject matter or, or whatever but that's there's a lot of movies about killing and people doing bad things that i, I, I watch the godfather like once a year you know like what right I don't so, know, I don't so it's missing something or it's so what this, is it so to take that like michael corleone what is yeah. what makes that story feel like it has more to say than well, the story I, of perry smith and because this one ends and there's a great oh this is perfect timing for this quote uh brooks <laughs> said uh brooks held personal uh beliefs against the death penalty on crimes and commented i think the crime without motive is really what this is about the crime yes. itself was senseless the boys lives before that were senseless and the end is senseless because it solves nothing Mm-hmm. And we have that whole speech at the end by, I think it's like the reporter or like a police officer where he's basically like, this is yeah. going to change nothing. Yeah. The kind of jarringly sudden voiceover from the Capote stand-in. I, I think that's why. Like, yeah. I think that, like, that's why it feels, and it, he may be right. Brooks may be 100% right that like this doesn't solve anything or whatever, but it kind of undermines the whole point of the film existing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's this incredibly cynical thought process well i mean okay from a less cynical more optimistic standpoint one could also argue that you know we had all this senselessness happen in real time affecting real people and so is like the one vestige of hope that we can get out of it is turning it into art to get people thinking differently schopenhauer i feel like you're arthur schopenhauer right now in the flesh the the only escape was art um (laughs) yeah no i see what you're saying it's just but i think that's one of the reasons why it's not it's not like an enjoyable film no no and i i mean we're so deep in this bullshit i mean i think we both agree that like art doesn't have to be enjoyable right no 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 of course not it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have to be enjoyable to be valuable but i do think that like that's one reason i don't know why um you know a movie like this i mean it's certainly remembered i think fairly well it's in criterion that's worth something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but it, it's one, you know, it's the maybe the reason why it's not like a Godfather type movie or like a, you know, I don't even know what else would you say was like a big movie in the late '60s, like the The Graduate, yeah, <laughs> like, or like Bonnie and Clyde, Graduate right? more beloved than a film like this when we know <laughs> that the craft behind it is probably better. You know what yeah. I mean. Love, 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 love. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, so we, before uh, we, I kind of fall on my sword too much, I think at this point it's good to um, note, as has been my trend with these episodes, that even though I love this film and even though I think it's <laughs> culturally important, um, yeah. there it's got its problematic elements apart from everything else we've just mentioned. Uh, yeah. There is um, this kind of uh there has there was this big um kind of discovery 
of documents and diary entries of uh, the farmer, the the clutter patriarch that mm-hmm. came out in the nineties, uh, and one of which uh, was like reopened a whole like um, case against um, the Kansas field office of the FBI because they because it turned out that the farmer guy was having an affair and that there was some kind of like potential um, open opportunity for like a revenge plot that like was never discovered uh, between uh, Smith and Hickok and uh, the clutter family. So like, that's the other part of this whole genre, right? Is like, even with a film like this, you know, by the master Capote himself, uh, staying as close as possible to the true story. Like Capote literally visited Smith in prison, right? Um, not unlike, you know, Tom Hardy visiting Bronson in prison in advance yeah. of that film. Um, you have like so many open endings, like loose, loose ends, um, from the real life story that could like completely flip the script on everything that happened. Maybe there was a motive. Maybe this isn't as senseless maybe it was about money and the there you know they just was never recovered um because that was like that's a sticking point in the story right is that they did this even though they could only find the 43 dollars yeah i mean that's something you can never expect no 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 you know in this in this uh, (laughs) art can't illuminate fact it just doesn't no, you know, it can't, uh, especially it just creates a new narrative. Well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, and the, the other bit I'll mention is, uh, <laughs> I just called him the master Capote, but he's also, uh, historically racist. And yes. one of the things that he did not like about what Brooks did with the film, even though he, you know, lauded a great amount of it was, uh, his inclusion of Quincy Jones on the soundtrack. Capote yeah. was quoted saying, um, that he couldn't understand why Jones was doing a film with no black people in it. Uh, it like as if he could only score films that featured black leads yeah, yeah. and like, yeah. I know. And, uh, but like, yeah, I don't know. He was friends with Harper Lee and you know, it's the whole, like, I mean, that's also the time of MLK and talking about the problem with moderate liberals and all that. So yeah. rough stuff. Um, but, uh, doesn't change the fact that like, God, I mean, I remember how much this movie affected me when I saw it when I was like 20 or whatever and no, yeah, you know, nearly 40 and it hit me like a ton of bricks all over again. Yeah, it's, it, there's something about it. It's just the combination of people involved and uh, the story that they're telling and the... Honestly, it's like a lot of hard work for this movie. You know, yeah. it's one of those movies like when I say everything is intentional, like I really do mean that. It's like every the cues, everything, the shots, just um, really beautiful stuff. Yeah. Uh, on the contrary, uh, would be our next movie, um, Compulsion. Right. Which, 1959. What's the back? You picked this one. Give us maybe a little bit of backstory on why you picked it and why you thought yeah. it was something to, to play off of uh, in Cold Blood. Yeah. So the the big draw for me is that I hadn't realized that there was a movie um, adaptation of Loeb and Leopold, the famous um, kind of trial of the century uh, or at least it was called that alongside with like the Lindbergh baby kidnapping in yeah. the 1920s. Uh, and Loeb and Leopold is also heavily uh, referenced as is the famous attorney that defended those two young murderers, Clarence Darrow in a novel uh, that I used to teach 
which is actually my personal favorite novel of all time, Native Son by oh, Richard nice. Wright, oh. and which is also like a it heavily prominently features a, a a murder trial at the center of it. And so I was super psyched when I found out like there's like Orson Welles as a Clarence Darrow stand-in. That's kind of a, a big difference with uh, this film compared to a lot of the others is that they, they very, like everything is very close to the at least documented truth. And yet they changed all the names Interesting. Um, for, to, to show this court case. But it, like you said, it has a great similarity to in cold blood because like uh, Smith and Hickok, um, Loeb and Leopold, or as they're renamed in this story, uh, Artie and, uh, what's Dean Stockwell's character name? I, I forget. forget. Um, I just keep thinking he's the guy from uh, Quantum Leap. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyways, they uh, are basically motiveless. Um, but Loeb and Leopold in particular, the kind of the one motive or kind of reasoning that comes out that is that also to distinctly contrast it from in cold blood keeps them from the death penalty is this uh suggestion that their wealth um is a large reason for their kind of moral their stunted morality um their stunted emotional depth and intelligence even if they are incredibly educated um and so it's kind of like, you know, in the way it's, it's this very similar, but almost inverse. Cause right. Cause, uh, um, Smith and Hickok and in cold blood are very poor and yeah, down and out, uh, down and out. Yeah. Whereas here it's like the, the, the kids that have it all. And so they basically treat their kidnapping and murder of this young child as a science experiment. Um, yeah. And it's, it's sick, it's disgusting, and like you kind of mentioned at the top, kind of the weird thing about this movie that uh, really stood out to me, you know, I was definitely watching it thinking, like, you got Orson Welles playing essentially Clarence Darrow, and mm-hmm. I haven't heard of this movie, and I love movies, and I love Orson Welles. <laughs> and I think it comes down to the fact that, uh, and I think you, you, you texted uh, me about this, or put yeah. it in our our, our group online Slack. chat, yeah, yeah, about how like the movie feels like a completely different thing when Orson Welles walks in, like yeah. two thirds of the way through. <laughs> he just like steal. Uh, the, the thing about this movie is that it's um, it's such a product of this like like kind of the end of the studio system, right? As mm-hmm. it's starting starting to wane, because um, it has all of these elements that feel like a big nineteen forties nineteen fifties film but the story is so dark uh, and they, they actually don't shy away from a lot of it it is a very dark film um just the vibe and the tone uh the acting's really good across the board um i mean dean stockwell who plays judd i think you're looking for his name yes thank uh, you and Bradford uh bradford dillman um just like oh unnerving Dillman reminds me a lot of Anthony Perkins in Psycho. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. He has that same sort of schneid kind of floating along his words. Uh, meanwhile, he's a psychopath underneath it all, right? Um, the thing, the, I don't understand why they opened the movie the way that they did. <laughs> like that opening title card sequence. What yeah. are they thinking? Like, it's like, this is not. Um, <laughs> you know, some like circus movie from 19, you know, 40. It's so bizarre. It's just a bizarre opening, but then it settles into itself. 
Um, it's messy. It's just a messy movie with really good acting. Um, and in terms of the true crime elements, um, you know, I thought it was interesting in the fact that like they, well, number one, they don't really, they hinted it heavily that they, there's like a, a deeper romantic relationship between the two leads, but obviously they can't show it. Um, but I think they actually did a good job of walking that line. Oh, I mean, yeah. you'd have to be an idiot to not know that these two were, you know, uh, in love with each other. Um, and so I think they or, actually did, a, or or that at least Judd was in love with um, Artie, and yes. Artie had like a sick kind of like, like control over him. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a healthy relationship, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like eh, it's a fascinating film. I think the best scene is when Judd attacks the girl, mm, and it's like good. this reveal. And the way that she plays it to what was her name? Diane Varsi, I think. Um, and she like disappeared from acting after this movie. That was what mm. I read. She's good. Um, she's good when she gets on the stand too. Yeah. Very good. And that whole scene is sort of like, Oh man, here it is. Here's like this reveal of these, you know, we talk about humanizing somebody. I think that scene actually did humanize him. Yeah. He's, you know, has these impulses and these desires that he doesn't feel like he can control and they come out and they hurt people and they hurt people that he loves and that he likes. Um, that felt very real and authentic to me. Um, you know, and I think when we, when thinking about true crime and I think that there's a fascination there with the act of hurting another person, because people are like, I can never do that. Who could do that? Um, well, it turns out other people have just same emotions that you do and the, the way that they deal them is very different than most people. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that was that moment. And then it's like that happens. And then the whole thing, then they get caught. And there's like a pretty good interrogation scene with E.G. Marshall mm-hmm. um, that I thought was solid. I was like, oh, that's a pretty cool kind of procedural thing. And then Orson Welles shows up. And then it's like he, there's, I don't, I don't know how to put it into words. Like I would say that both Dean Stockwell and Bradford Dillman acted really, really well in this movie. Orson Welles shows up and he's just on a different level. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like, it's not, he's not acting like he's, uh, he's so inhabited the character that he was, that he like transcended the character that was written on the page into something completely different. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. in What third man, I think. Um, yeah, totally. And I'm just like, wow. But when you look at it as a film, it's like, well, this makes no sense. <laughs> it's like two different movies. Right. 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 Uh, um, or, really or three. Work. Cause okay, like, yeah. I feel like the whole thing with like the, the, the peer that's also like moonlighting as a reporter. Yeah, what's that? Thing, about? Like, yeah, that felt like very much like, you know, s- standard forgotten fifties flick kind of thing. Yeah. yeah and then like, I do think I agree with you that Dillman's, at the top of his game. And I think Stockwell oh, so is good. too. So good. Bro, so um, good. Like when he blows up yeah. finally during the interrogation, uh, at EG Marshall, who's also, um, killing it. Uh, guy, I know him best as like the, you know, the, the mean juror in 12 angry men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Oh, he's, he's like the president in Superman two or whatever too. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's just, it's so disjointed, unfortunately. And it just feels like it could have been a absolute, like American classic had it been, um, you know, properly scripted and not. It was also probably a decade too early. 
Yep. Yep. That's know? fair too. Like it's like uh, it's part of the system. It's, you're not going to have a lot. I don't think who uh, Richard Fleischer did this, right? Yeah. Um, it, like, I don't think you got a lot of choice. <laughs> They're basically, right. you know, I always like to think of like, uh, those old, you know, even the thing like Babylon or something, or like Hell Caesar, where there's just like studio execs like smoking cigars on set. Like, what are you doing? You know, like, this is right. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's very much. <laughs> Where's <Once> Orson? <laughs> another way in which it's kind of the inverse from In Cold Blood, right? It, that's, yeah, it's not that's an meticulously thing. detailing. There's everything. no French New Wave in 1959, so it's right. like, there's right. nothing to point to. Yeah, um, I mean, the, I'm just looking at Fleischer's filmography. This is the guy that did everything from Soylent Green to Amity Phil Three. But also like oh, 20, okay. the original Twenty Thousand Leagues Under a Sea, and uh, I don't know. He's he, yeah, he was definitely a a, a hired hand. Hey, um, everybody's got to make a paycheck. Oh yeah, so absolutely. That's, right? that's what I say. He's, you know, which is you know, <laughs> like uh, I, I'm going to go back to Inkobo really quick. Sure. Richard Brooks's career. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah, that also doesn't make any sense. He this, he fell off essentially after in Cold Blood. It's crazy. Um, like, what did he? He did hardly did anything. Right. I know. I he, haven't seen the Happy Ending. I don't know what that is. A dollar sign, which is a movie with Goldie Hawn. Um, mm-hmm. He did the adaptation of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which is pretty okay. iconic, um, yeah. with Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman. Um, uh, Blackboard Jungle, which I've never seen, but that's supposed to be. Um, uh, a pretty big uh, '50s no- film well, after a famous Cold novel. Blood, and you're like, no, I know everything wasn't even after that, that. Old? How old would he would have been? Oh, okay. No, yeah, so he was like fifty in yes. his late fifties yes. when he made it. So, okay, he's probably because he's got a little bit of journeyman for MGM, and then he yep. went independent in the in the '60s, and then he eventually right. So, in Cold right. Blood's kind of his masterpiece. Then, yep, yep. Um, Better than anything I ever done to them. And never will do. <laughs> Wait a sec. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay, so uh, as we're kind of wrapping this up, let's let's zoom out Ooh, for a second before yeah, we do our final out. our final round of trivia is coming up in a few minutes. But I've been itching to ask um, because I I don't think we've done this with previous cycles, sure. um, but I was kind of looking at our previous collection of episodes on risque romance films yeah. and kind of just seeing like the vast gulf in quality between my favorites and like why did Dan make me watch this um, <laughs> bottom of the list stuff. Uh, what what would you say looking at all twelve films sure. that were based on stranger than fiction true stories? Uh-huh. What's your top? What's your bottom? Oh my god, this is brutal. Um, top straight time without without a doubt. I, was, I thought you were going to say that. Yeah, nothing's even close. Like it's not even the fact that it's like it's. It, it felt like a movie that has not. I feel like I want to champion this movie for like the the, the next decade of my life <laughs> and be like, no, Straight Time is a '70s classic film. You've missed it. Nobody's seen it. It's a little bit of an underdog, so I like that. I'd also say like. Um, I didn't this I'm gonna be honest, I didn't love this cycle of films. Wow. Uh I think this is my least favorite cycle by Wow. Far. Yeah. Uh it just nothing stood out to me. I didn't really love Dead Ringers that much. I Fuck know you. That's, that's my number one. Fear and Loathing didn't like it. <laughs> no, it's a uh, Heavenly Creatures didn't love it either. Um Bronson Terminal. Honestly, Bling Ring might be my number two. <laughs> wow. <laughs> The worst wow. by far would be uh, Serpent in the Rainbow. What? In the oh, 
No, yeah, and the, the terminal. The terminal is definitely the, my bottom. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the terminal is it's like very watchable. I love Wes Craven, but buddy, dude, Surfing <laughs> the Rainbow is unwatchable. It's nearly unwatchable. Uh, what, about uh, you? what are your choices? It's going to yeah, be Dead Ringers, right? Yeah, Dead Ringers, top, terminal, bottom. Um, I actually really, uh, for the most part, enjoy it. I think terminal, second to last, would be Fear and Loathing. And my uh, number. Fe- uh, Fear and Loathing has not aged well. No. And I love and I, Hunter S. Thompson's work. I just, oh, he completely a, missed the point of it. It's a big nothing burger for me. Um, yeah. Ugh, my number two after Dead Ringers is probably Dog Day. Uh, I yeah, just, I enjoy Dog Day. I, just, uh, I love every frame of that mess of a movie. It's not yeah. a mess, though. It's just like a mess, like morally. Um, yeah, morally, it's all over the place. Right, um, right. But I think In Cold Blood's definitely high on my list, too. It's like, wow really yeah. amazing amazing film yes I agree, we learn anything about like you know the i was thinking about this in the shower i believe this morning uh um, thoughts classic shower thoughts i feel like i'm looking back at our different series like uh self-aware horror existential thriller sort of action or scary romance now stranger than fiction i always feel i walk away from one of these cycles with like a different understanding of that genre or micro genre i'm gonna call it like absurdist action you know, walking through those movies, I was like, oh, this all re- really did start with the movie like Brandy to Kill. Like, it's like it really did start from this zany, surrealist um, B-movie world. Um, or like understanding this like self-aware horror and like how that started. We, we started with Last House on the Left, Wes Craven call out. Um, and like it, all of that horror meets so much more sense going back that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know that I have a takeaway from stranger than fiction other than that it's really difficult to make a movie about a true subject and not be a complete asshole who's exploiting everybody involved yeah no i agree with you i think i i think i don't think that this is a worse grouping of films artistically but i do think it's a more depressing kind of trajectory of history um sad i feel like we've gone backwards yeah, yeah, you start with like the the. I also the other thing I couldn't stop thinking about during compulsion is like school shooter, school shooter. Like I kept thinking, seriously, like, yeah. Like that's how little we've like, progressed as a society. That's how much we've start. regressed yeah. as a society. Yeah. It's, uh, um. But the, and then we end with cocaine bear. It's like which is we, one of the worst movies I've seen this year, hands it's down. Like, it's it's like, so lazy, so freaking lazy. It's just idiocracy, like. In real but, time. Oh, God. Um, Bling Ring, folks. Go out and watch the Bling Ring for me. 2013. Uh, I don't know. Sophia mid, it's a hidden it masterpiece. Say. It's <laughs> even hidden from the director herself. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So we let's let's end on a positive note. Some trivia let's is always it. fun. Uh, yes. Let's, let's let's see if you can uh, do this. I think your best score has been three out of five. Okay. I don't know if you've You're, ever. These are very difficult. So I, mean, I just want to put that out there. Th- I did. I took your feedback, and I okay. believe these ones are are a little easier than the the others, especially because it's just it's hard to find like pre nineteen seventy films that that are based on like Nazi true stories. Okay, just Chat um, GPT this stuff. All right, let's go. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, I did not use Chat GPT for any uh, of these. Yeah, I probably should have. That would have been a lot easier. Uh, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> okay, nineteen sixty one. Is this a real movie based on a strange true story or a okay. fake one that I made up? 
With Tony Curtis in the lead role and the director of Tickle a Mockingbird at the helm, this wild true story of eccentric con man Ferdinand Waldo traces a life of lies from faking a decorated army resume and impersonating a prison warden to falsifying an attempted suicide and po- posing as a cloistered monk. I say true. Yeah, good job. One out of one. Um, Robert Mulliken was nominated for DGA for his work on The Great Imposter, which Spielberg said was a great influence on his I, 2002 comedy caper. I remember Catch the me name. if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's why. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I added that to my watch list. It sounds fun. Uh, 1963. From the director of Bonnie and Clyde comes this strange B movie thriller featuring a young Tom Skerritt in the lead role as Dr. William Chester Minor, the very real and very disturbed Civil War veteran that spent over 20 years in an insane asylum in the 1800s, filling his idle time murdering his fellow invalids and as one of the chief contributors to a large scale overseas project, the first official Oxford English Dictionary. I say not true. Yeah, you're due for two, Dan. Um, I did take that uh, log line, though, from uh, a work of creative nonfiction that's been on my reading list for a while. Uh, I think I will finally get to it after reading more about it. The Professor and the Madman, like a good 20% of the Oxford English Dictionary was written by an insane asylum patient. Oh, perfect. You know, it's got a lot of time on his hands. Exactly. Uh, 1965, starring Vanessa Redgrave and Jason Robards. And from Kitchen Sink Realism director Carl Rise comes this true story and biopic of one of the most cherished and controversial choreographers of all time, known for publicly lighting her parents' marriage certificate on fire, starting the Paris-based School for Life, which focused only on the arts of, quote, beauty and simplicity, and who ultimately made her way through countless tort affairs until r- arriving as an expat in the Soviet Union, going full-on Bolshevik. Was it true? Yeah! Isadora <laughs> follows the life of Isadora Duncan, pioneer of modern contemporary dance. Look at that. Three for three! This is your chance, Dan. Can you finally redeem yourself? I got this. <laughs> 1966. Audrey Hepburn shines, both literally and figuratively, in the lead role as factory worker Grace Fryer in Vittoria De Sica's neorealist rendering of the Industrial Age Scandal of the Century, wherein countless watch-dial painters unknowingly expose themselves to the radioactive dangers of radium, leading to wide-scale abuse and cover-ups. Hmm. Is it true? Fake! I made that one up. So close. I know I'm going to blow it. Okay, so the the hunt, the, you know, the batting a thousand or whatever the sports metaphor is not <laughs> happening, but you not can still happen. go four for five. Yeah. I did want to mention though that maybe you could argue that I cheated a little bit because I made that whole log line up until I realized in my research that there was a very little known movie in 2018 about that true story called Radium Girls. So I've was, heard of that. Yeah, it was released <laughs> virtually yeah. during the pandemic and made no money. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Last one, 1969. <clears throat> uh, under circumstances mysterious yet documented in several different fashions, Garfield's assassin, uh, President Garfield, uh, played by James Coburn, um, finds himself in a strange situation um, being in charge of the subsequent electoral win for his replacement. Directed by Bonnie and Clyde auteur Arthur Penn. Is it true? False! Oh, no! Oh, I didn't even I have that one fully it. written, and I just... Boy, oh, wow, you blew it. Blood. It's okay. 
Um, still, still got three out of three. I'll take three, that. Yeah, three. That's not bad at all. Dan, it's been real. Thanks for indulging me in my uh, episode trivia. Love it. Love some trivia. You want to? Should we tease? This is the end of the cycle. Should we tease the next cycle? Oh yeah, let's do it. What do we uh, got cooking? So we're going to do movies that were set in the 1950s. Uh, so we're, I'm really excited about this because we really want to do Asteroid City, uh, which is coming out in June. Uh, so next month, the new Wes Anderson movie set in the 1950s. And so we decided, hey, let's just do a whole theme on that and see how uh, the viewpoint of the decade has changed over the years. Um, so I'm really excited to do it. I have a good list of guests coming up. So um, please do join us for that. And thank you for listening. This has been Film Trace.